0: Not gathered on a Sunday morning with God's people to pray and to worship and to read scripture and just to be together. Um, we know after Jesus' resurrection that the kind of time spent with his disciples was so meaningful to them. And even though I've never been to this church before, I get to participate in this sort of fellowship here, and it means a lot to me. I'm reminded of uh, a time I visited a church in Hong Kong. So I was a missionary kid when I was young. My parents were missionaries in China. And my oldest brother still lives in Hong Kong. And I visited him one time and went to his church, and I'll never forget it. And I was reminded of this as I was praying for you all this Sunday and, or preparation for this Sunday. Uh, there was a baptism service. And at this baptism, an American pastor in China... Was baptizing a young girl from Malaysia who had been adopted by Australian parents. And it was just an amazing picture of the family that we have in the Lord, that every tribe, tongue, people, we will gather and sing his praises. And right now, even as I come, I'm part of your family. You're part of my family if you ever visit my church. So it's wonderful. To be with you all, I appreciate Pastor Dan and his family being here and serving with all of you. Uh, we're going to read in the Book of Hebrews. My uh, sermon is from chapter twelve in the Book of Hebrews. If you'd like to turn there now, you can. Uh, as we read God's Word, I'm going to start in verse three, and then I'll read through verse seventeen. Hebrews twelve, three through seventeen. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing through tears. This is the word of the Lord. Before uh, I preach, let's just pray for a moment together. Almighty God, our Father, Lord, we come before you humbled by your word. Lord, I feel humber- humbled as a preacher. I think of the theologian who said, Who are you, O man, to open your mouth and speak about God? And yet, Lord, you have given us your spirit who testifies. Lord, you have gathered us today by your word, Lord, a word that gathers people all over the world. Lord, we are confirmed in the faith because of your power, that, Lord, you hold us fast, and that, Lord, you as our great shepherd speak and we can hear your voice. We pray right now, Lord, that you would speak among us, that our hearts would be soft, that you would give us ears to hear what instruction you have for us. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. I have a question to start this sermon. When you think about an earthly picture of what the wrath of God might look like, what comes to your mind? Strictly speaking, Jesus on the cross is the clearest icon that we have of God's wrath. But imagine just someone in ordinary life thinking, God's wrath, what's the kind of picture you have? One thing that might come to mind from cartoons is lightning bolts, right? You know, like lightning bolt, lightning bolt. Wiley Coyote running from the wrath of God. Or maybe just misfortune or setbacks or challenges. Obstacles. God is out to get me. In the first chapter of Romans, the phrase associated with the wrath of God is not coming against, but giving over. It's God allowing. Three times it says God's wrath is his allowance of people to reject him. His wrath is his allowance of distortion of what he's designed. It's his allowance of creation becoming an idol. It's not lightning bolts. Sometimes God's wrath is allowing people to live exactly as they want. His stepping back and in some way removing barriers. This is wrath as earthly ease. Our passage today shows how the converse can also be true. Pain as an evidence of love. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know that the author is addressing a group of followers of Jesus who were in a lot of pain. In chapter 11, 35 thirty-eight, We read about Old Testament believers who had been tortured and mocked, beaten and imprisoned. Some had been sawn in two. They were destitute and homeless. Then in chapter 12, verse 1, we hear about this marathon of faith and the need to strip off not just sin, but everything that inhibits us. That we would look on Jesus who also suffered. Who's the example of suffering. Now it's like the writer wants to bring this home and he gets to an imperative. He says, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You are encountering this pain, this hostility, this struggle, this threat of resisting to the point of blood. We know from Hebrews Hebrews 10.34 that some in this group that were being addressed were in prison and had some of their property taken away. So they were paying a price. What makes sense of this? Why is this happening? The author says discipline, instruction, training. It's a Greek word, paideia. And I think about it as an educator, the training of children. And training fits with this kind of athletic metaphor and the fact that we don't see a strong sense of rebuke against this But just a kind of making sense of it, a clarifying, almost a coach describing why these followers of Jesus are going what they're going through. And while it's painful, there's a lot that's packed into this. So we learn seven things about this training, this discipline. Seven things. The first thing is that it's validating. Validating. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves. God trains those he loves. And those he loves are legitimized as his children by his discipline of them. See verse 8. If you are not disciplined, then you are not legitimate children. You are not true sons. I want to note here. We sometimes, in kind of ordinary life, describes everyone as a child of God. That's not quite true. That's not how the Bible describes it. The Bible says that we've all been made by God. That we are all image bearers of God and so have extraordinary value on the earth. We're also told that we are all neighbors of one another. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is an illustration of what a high bar it is to be a neighbor of someone else. But the only earthly sons and daughters of God are those that God has adopted. Note here that it says sons. It doesn't say sons and daughters. What do we make of that? Especially given that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it calls all believing women daughters of God. So why here only Sons. I think it's important because every child disciplined here has an inheritance. So listen to Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons, describing all the people receiving this, following Jesus. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. In ancient cultures... Only sons were heirs. Daughters were not heirs. They did not inherit the goods of the father. So, everyone who follows Jesus is a son in the sense that everyone receives the inheritance of Jesus. It's incredible value. It's great dignity. In the ancient world, this would have been quite a thing to say of a woman, that she was an inheritor. She was a functional son of God. What is that inheritance? One commentator describes it this way Our inheritance as children of God includes at least this the world and all that is in it, God Himself as our final and ultimate portion and reward, and new glorified bodies that can enjoy more fully and deeply God and His gifts with no hint of idolatry. That's a great inheritance. So first thing that we learn is that this discipline is validating. There's a status that we have before God that is validated by being disciplined as sons. The second thing we learn is that this training is universal. In verse 8, discipline in which all have participated. So this is something we understand. This is something that transcends any kind of particular family. This is something common to the human experience. God has no undisciplined children. There are not some of us that are disciplined and some of us that are not disciplined. It's hard to understand, but it's even said that Jesus is disciplined in Hebrews 5.8. He was disciplined to learn obedience through what he suffered. Validating, universal, familiar. Verse 9. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be disciplined by the father of our spirits and live? Here, the writer appeals to childhood. That experience that we've all had. Some of us, maybe in this place, did not have a father growing up or we didn't have this experience of being disciplined. But we've all experienced something like this. Maybe from a coach or a mentor or a teacher. That feeling that they say... You can do better than this. Do it again. This isn't enough. I know you need to try that. You need to take some time. You need to reflect on the gifts God has given you. All of us have had that loving word of guidance, of correction. And we respect the people that take the time to offer that. As a parent, if you're a parent, I see some children here. You know it's easier, actually, in the short term... To not give that word of correction, we all know that feeling. Of, I think of my own uh, daughter and son. They share a room, and they go to bed, and then every now and then one of them comes down, and something isn't quite right. And at that point of the day, I said, "Dad, you're tired. You kind of just want to be done. You're like, I've just clocked out of being a father. I'm sorry, Nora. You're gonna need to set this. You're gonna need to save this for tomorrow." But the loving thing at that time is to step in and continue to guide and correct. To view that as a learning opportunity. To lovingly say, it would be easier for me to say nothing right now. The loving thing for me is to continue to guide you and care for you. Unlike those examples of earthly discipline, though, another quality of this discipline is that it is faultless. It's perfect. Verse 10 says, They, speaking of those earthly examples of discipline, they trained us as seemed best to them. The implication being, they had imperfect awareness of what perfect discipline would be. And parents know this too, where you don't always know exactly the right way to care and correct. They trained us as seemed best for them, but God disciplines us for our good. This sense that every movement of his discipline, every decision, every judgment... Perfectly calculated for our good, for our flourishing, to bring us into greater communion with him. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't discipline out of anger and then later come back and say, that was actually not the right call. We can be blessed and encouraged. It's amazing that we read that first question from the Heidelberg Catechism, that every, every aspect of our suffering is used by God purposefully a God that knows all, that has all power. Sometimes we have earthly examples of discipline who discipline more for their own sake than for others. Sometimes a teacher can do this, where they remove a student from the classroom more for their own sanity in the classroom than for the particular good of that student. But an all-powerful God never has to make that trade-off. There's never a time when God thinks, boy, for the good of this community, I have to do something that really isn't beneficial for this one member. God is able in his sovereign power to care perfectly for every one of his sheep. There's not a kind of sacrifice for the flock, for the one. He is able to go after the one and care for the 99. This discipline is perfecting us. So it's not just faultless, but it brings us to a place of symmetry with the holiness of our Father. Last part of verse 10. He disciplines for us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Unbelievable, that we may share in the holiness of Almighty God who every moment in heaven is praised as holy, holy, holy. If you skip down to verse 14, we see that this link to holiness makes our Father's training And discipline essential. It has to happen. Strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without which no one will see God. So holiness is essential for our communion with God. For our bringing together with all the saints. Those that are the people of God. We won't be able to participate in that. Without the essential discipline of God. The sixth thing gives us a sense of the rich importance of God's training is that it is severe. God's discipline is severe. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this because this is really the kind of main thrust of this passage. Verse 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful, it's agonizing. It results in drooping hands and weak knees. In verse 13 it says, Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. So the author is writing to this community that is suffering, that is agonizing over their experience following God. And he's saying, that discipline, it's validating, it's essential, it's faultless, it's perfecting. But the main thing on their mind is, why is this so hard? Why is this so painful and difficult? Before we explore that severity, I want to point out something about this balanced picture of human suffering and the unique place of agency and purpose within it. And I want to contrast that with other accounts. So, at one extreme of thinking about the material world and the suffering in it is total detachment. So, in various ways, Eastern religion says that the material world is either kind of an illusion or just insignificant. The Bhagavad Gita says, when your intellect has cleared itself of delusions, you will become indifferent to the results of all action, present or future. It doesn't really matter. You can become indifferent to it. That's one extreme, one way to make sense of the discipline and suffering that we feel from our Heavenly Father. It doesn't really matter. It's not really there. Another extreme is probably more Com- common among uh, places we inhabit, and that's kind of Western secularism, which makes the material world ultimate. It's all there is, and you can see this in different ways. So, one longtime historian of science, William Provine, he teaches at Cornell, he wrote, Humans are comprised of only two things, heredity and environment, both of which are deterministic. There is simply no room for the traditional concepts of human agency and free will. So he's saying, you think as a human being that you have choice, that you make decisions, that there's a sense of self inside of you and a kind of soul in you. That's an illusion. The whole world is just kind of atoms bumping around together. We might not think that, but a kind of softer version of this tells us that functionally we are kind of our circumstances, the environment around us. Put a different way our salvation would come about through better circumstances. So, if our health improved or if we had a better job or if we had more money or if the sort of immediate challenges that we're facing in the world, if those just went away, there would be no suffering. There would be no struggle in the world. That's the soundtrack to most of our lives. That's circumstances, the kind of material things around us really will dictate whether we're happy or not. And the author of Hebrews acknowledges that there is something important about the spiritual significance of our suffering and the feeling we have of the suffering and the ordinary experience of being human on earth. This whole image of training for a long race and the various types of challenges we occur, weariness, getting discouraged, we get weak in the knees. And I don't know what happens to you, but I get this horrible knot in my stomach when I'm stressed, when I'm feeling training and discipline from the Lord. It's physical. You really feel it. But alongside that, the author maintains that in Christ we have agency by his spirit. I see two levels of that in this text. One is there are some things we have kind of immediate direct control over. We can lift up our drooping hands. I want to spend a little more time though on a different account of agency and that's a kind of second level where it's not something that we have immediate direct control over. We can't just lift our hands this way but it's something that we have the ability to affect and later on that will cause our environment to either help or hinder us. So here I'm taking this passage that says make straight paths for your feet. So that's a little bit more of a kind of longer term intention. I'm going to make paths ahead of me that will help My feet be able to walk in a straight direction, right? That's a kind of indirect sort of agency. I was in Nashville for Father's Day, and we often drive to Nashville to visit my parents who live there. And if you've ever been in Tennessee, there's lots of these rolling hills, not huge mountains, but fairly large hills that kind of go up and down and weave around. And in some places on the interstate, you can see this very large hill that was massively altered, you know, like a huge amount of earth removed so that the freeway could continue fairly straight and fairly flat. And when you see some of these incredible kind of like movements of the earth, it makes you wonder about the calculation to make that decision because it must have cost an enormous amount of money to basically move a small mountain so the road can be a little straighter and a little flatter. I was curious about this, talking to my wife about it, and I did some, some sleuthing to learn a little bit about how these decisions are made. And there's an organization called the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. I imagine their conferences are very lively. There's a regulation that in rolling terrain, so not mountainous terrain, there's a sort of different criteria, rolling terrain, with a speed limit of 75 miles an hour, the maximum grade allowed is 4%. There's a whole separate manual which I could not access online that regulates the road curvature, so the radius of the turn. And you think about all of the work that goes into making sure that truck engines don't overheat, that cars are able to kind of stay on the road, that there's not too many sharp turns, that, you know, my car, which has an old engine, is able to get up some of these inclines. All of these things exist to minimize car accidents, and trouble. And there's a massive amount of intentionality about preparing the environment to avoid those things. I think about that when I think about this line in Scripture. Make straight paths for your feet. We could approach that very casually, but I think there's a spiritual lesson here that if we are going to get to where we need to go, We need to think a lot about the path we're going to take there, and in some cases make drastic changes to that path. I'm reminded of how Jesus talks a significant amount about the challenges of money and wealth and greed. And I live in this unique place on the west side of Chicago, which is very low income, next to a fairly affluent suburb, Oak Park, and the income disparity is significant, and As the school is located in Oak Park, I often have to go to the village office, and there's a kind of official there that I've gotten to know a little bit. He's not originally from Oak Park, but he said something that I thought was really insightful about being in Oak Park. He said, when I moved here, I felt poor for the first time. And I don't know if you've ever been in a certain environment where you were perfectly content with what you had, and then you went into some other neighborhood or some other place, or you visited someone else's house, and suddenly... Just being in that environment raised questions in your mind about whether you had enough stuff or whether you were comfortable enough or whether you should really be doing something else or living somewhere else or whether your whole life plan was maybe going in the wrong direction because where you were was giving you doubts. I think that's a profound illustration of how much the environment we can be in can cause us to see new things. My wife and us feel feel this way because now we live in a very low income neighborhood and where i used to maybe be in oak park and think man i just really don't have all that much now i live in a community where i think wow i have been remarkably blessed in material ways my whole life by god and i've been fairly indifferent and often failing to see how extraordinary his bounty his goodness his kind of overflowing care in my life has been to me my wife, our children. The environment can cause us to see things and think things. One of the blessings about working at our school is we intentionally reserve half of the seats for low-income students. So it causes there to be a really neat mix of families. One quarter of the families have a household income less than $20,000 a year. On the other side, a quarter of the families have a household income more than $125,000 a year. That's a significant difference between those two groups. But here's something remarkable and wonderful about the way that God works. Everyone is blessed when you're in that sort of environment because there are unique ways that we can praise God when he's provided for all of our needs. There are unique ways that we can praise God when we are dependent on his care. We feel our dependence, which is always real, but we feel it in a unique way When times are tight. And so we can exchange this sense of provision and care and love from God when we are in communities and environments where we intentionally say, we want this to be a place where we are kind of trying to straighten the road and be reminded that we do not need material things for God to care for us, but they do influence us. And so we need to be mindful about the environment we're in, the kind of path that we're making for ourselves. All right. Back to the severity of God's discipline. I really want to dwell on the end of verse 12. Uh, It has this kind of uncomfortable image of lifting up our drooping hands, strengthening our weak knees, and making straight paths. And in the version that I first studied this in, in the ESV, it describes this next clause this way. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed not be put out of joint. If you've played sports a lot, you've seen someone with a dislocated joint. And it's not something that's nice to see. When you see it, you almost feel nauseous. It's something that is not right. It's not the way that things ought to be. It's not health. I remember I played a lot of soccer growing up, and every now and then... I remember seeing someone with a dislocated knee, and it's just, it's not right. It's, it's kind of sickening. It's not how something ought to be. It's not how someone would be able to walk the dislocated knee. What's striking to me, though, is that the author in Hebrews uses that image speaking to someone experiencing suffering, and there's something very painful and honest about that de- depiction, that he's not sugarcoating what it's like sometimes To experience the discipline of God, there's a kind of honesty about how it's painful and almost grotesque. We're a classical school, so we try and read a lot of old texts. One of the texts that we read parts of is Dante's poem, The Divine Comedy. And there's a picture in that poem that I want to give for you of God ordained suffering. It's something I've never been able to forget. Dante is being guided by, into, toward heaven by Virgil, and they approach this big canyon that's full of fire, and the path goes straight through the canyon, and Dante is getting a little anxious about what's going to happen to him, so they pause as they're overlooking this canyon full of fire. I'm going to read part of uh, the text for you. Gripping my hands together, I leaned forward, and staring at the fire, I recalled what human bodies looked like burned to death. Virgil said to me, My dear son, there may be pain there, but there is no death. Believe me when I say that if you spent a thousand years within the fire's heart, it would not singe a single hair of yours. Here's where it gets good. Once in the flame, I gladly would have cast my body into boiling glass to cool it against the measureless fury of the blast. From the other side to guide us rose a hymn and moving toward it, mindless of all else, we emerged at last. Did you hear that? So they go into the fire and he says, it is so hot in here that I would like to cool myself by being in boiling glass. (laughs) That's a pretty vivid description of suffering and agony. But there's a lot of biblical imagery in that. Even imagery to that question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Not a hair will be singed. It will be painful. But God is able to protect even a single hair. If this is part of his perfect, faultless, fatherly love and discipline. I like that last line where it says that on the other side, as Dante is in the midst of this, he hears a hymn. People singing from the other side, people who have gone through this fiery travail. And we learn later in the poem that these are the saints singing to those who are going through this experience, encouraging them. This is also a picture of Hebrews 12, where a great cloud of witnesses testifies of God's glory and encourages us on our own travel. In this larger text, we see an interesting movement where verse 4 started with an external challenge, so suffering that comes against us. That experiences internally this feeling of how do we kind of understand this on our own. But then from verse 12 to 14, it talks about external reactions and environments and the kind of other people and community that we experience this with. So in verse 14, it's very corporate and collective. Strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no one fails to obtain that holiness. So not just yourself, but look, be on the lookout for other people that they can endure this suffering. And then see that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So make sure there's no root of bitterness that could hurt other people. That's a critical theme here in the book of Hebrews, this kind of collective unity the people of God had. So from Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, take care brothers, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or then Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. There's something difficult about encouraging someone in the midst of their suffering. You can be callous or insensitive. Oh, it's not that bad. Here's a quote, though, from an author I really like, Eleanor Stump, where she talks about suffering and how to explain it in the narratives of Scripture. She writes, How can suffering be redeemed? What looks perplexingly blank in the abstract has handholds for our thought when we think about the question in connection with a story. Suffering can be redeemed for the sufferer in personal relationships. Heartbreak can be woven into joy through the reciprocity of love. She talks about stories, personal relationships, those people on the other side of the chasm that we know, that we care, that we have heard their story, and they are encouraging us in our own story. In that vein, I want to tell you a story of a woman connected to our school, the field school. She's a board member. She helped start the school. Her name's Daisy. She is an African American woman. She grew up on the west side of Chicago, and she has a remarkable story. So, she is the youngest of a few children, but she always had this curiosity and love of learning. She always wanted to read books. Uh, But at the age of six, Daisy's mother died, and it was the last time she saw her father. And her father said to her at her funeral You will never amount to anything, you will just be like your grandma. And that had a lot of significance to Daisy because Daisy's grandmother was on the west side of Chicago and ran functionally a brothel in her home. So for Daisy to hear that had a lot of impact on her, that her earthly father was saying of her the best she would ever do was follow that same path. As Daisy was raised by her grandmother, she had two choices. She could serve in the brothel directly, or she could basically babysit the children that were kind of associated with it. And Daisy, because she loved to read, chose the option of caring for the children, and she would take them to the library. She was not really supposed to go to the library, so she would find cans in the neighborhood, sell the cans, you know, you'd get like five cents, you know, to someone that was going to turn it back in, and she would get a little bit of money so that she could buy a popsicle for each of the children that she was caring for. And she'd say, I will give you a popsicle, but you're not going to say anything about going to the library because we're not supposed to go to the library. So for years, Daisy would go to the library, read books. She was largely not in school during this time, but by her kind of, uh, her working, she was able to read a lot of books. When it was time for Daisy to go to high school, there was a selective enrollment which your parents needed to sign you up for, and her grandmother would not sign her up for this high school. So Daisy stayed outside of the school on this night. and She found a friend. and She walked with the friend posing as a sibling. And then later, she came back when they were already in. And she said, I was forgotten to be written down. Can you just write my name? My parents aren't here right now, but I came in with that other group. Then they said, okay. That allowed Daisy to go to a high school. She decided she wanted to uh, go to college. By this point, she was a ward of the state. The relationship with her grandmother had broken down. She went to Loyola University, and for two years, she lived in an abandoned property in Chicago. She couldn't afford to do room and board at the school. So she lived in a building that had no lighting and no heating for two years, two Chicago winters. And during that time, she felt the Lord's call on her life to become a doctor. But she also felt this desire to become a mom and to care for her children, and to be there when they were going through growing up years like her parents had not been able to be for her. So she prayed to the Lord, and she said, Lord, I will become a doctor, but may I first raise my children until they're of school age, and they're mostly out of the house, and then I can go back to medical school. And she felt like the Lord said yes to that. So she raised her children, lived in the Austin neighborhood where I live, and when her youngest son started eighth grade, The Lord reminded her of what she describes as her vow. This was her vow before the Lord. And she started medical school. She eventually became a pediatrician. She serves in Lawndale Christian Health Center, where my my wife works. And her daughter also became a doctor. Daisy went to a medical school in the Chicago area. Daisy's daughter went to Harvard Medical School. And when you talk to Daisy and her daughter you see this testimony of Daisy's relentless trust and faith in God, that God protected her, that even when there were times of suffering where her following of Jesus meant she would not participate in the more comfortable route with her grandma, she would not participate in the kind of challenges of being an a orphan in college, but she would trust in the Lord and that suffering was always for her good and ultimately translated not just in her being able to care for the others, but her daughter and other people that ultimately brought glory to God because of their suffering. She describes in telling her story, I am a living witness that if you bring your hurts and your scars, he can make them something beautiful. He can give you beauty for those ashes. So we have this great cloud of witnesses. We have this duty to encourage one another. We have these saints singing on the other side of the fire, encouraging us. But those are not the ultimate example of both God's wrath and his discipline of his son, but also his tender mercy and his love and his care and his promise that he will raise us on the last day. The place we look for that is Jesus. Jesus is the place where we see all of the discipline that we properly deserve for our sin. We also see all of the suffering and agony. I want to read for you a description that describes what crucifixion was like, particularly with respect to the dislocation of the joints of the victim who was crucified. Listen to this. As the strength of the muscles of the victim's lower limbs were tired, the weight of his body had to be transferred to his wrists, his arms, and his shoulders. The victim's shoulders would be dislocated first, then the victim's elbows, then the victim's wrists. The result of these upper limb dislocations was that the victim's arms were as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. When Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's another line in that psalm that we may not remember. It's Psalm 22:14. 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. I don't know what you're going through right now. I imagine that like the recipient of the message of Hebrews, You face suffering and discipline from the Lord. Some of it might be persecution. Some of it might be the kind of challenge of following Christ faithfully in a difficult world. Some of it might be just the agony of trusting that God has our good in the midst of suffering and feeling like we don't see how that could be true. We don't feel like our hairs are not being singed. But I would encourage you to hear the encouragement of others, if you are able to sing on the other side of what other ever fiery trial that you've already been brought through by God's grace, and to be able to put your eyes on Christ, who was poured out like a drink offering, whose bones were brought out of joint, but who was raised on the last day, and who sits at the right hand of the Father, and who gives to us all that he inherits to be our own inheritance. That we are sons and daughters, that we are not illegitimate, that we are disciplined because the Father loves us and our status is validated by that discipline. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so fragile and frail. Lord, we so easily forget your fatherly care for us, and even the example we have of our older brother Christ, who learned obedience through suffering. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, that we would be prepared to face whatever it is that you have on the road ahead of us. Lord, that we would be mindful and discerning about how we can make straight paths for our feet, and Lord, that we would encourage our brothers and sisters. Lord, I thank you for how I am encouraged by hearing the singing of your praises. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to sing those praises, Lord, who are in the middle of the fire, who, Lord, don't have the strength to sing now, but our singing can encourage them. Our singing can guide them to the other side, that you will raise us all on the last day, in Christ, by the extraordinary power of your spirit. We thank you for that, and we pray with boldness, because we, Lord, are united with Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.